we always acknowledge the giants on whose shoulders we're standing, um, even if we ourselves are not directly standing on those particular shoulders. One, another way to think about this maybe is to say we should all maybe view ourselves as, as, as basically being required to be heroes to one another. And anytime somebody says, have you seen that public debt clock? I would say, you mean the private wealth clock? What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president. It is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! Now let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, my friends, this is Steve with Real Progressives. Today, I have our friend Robert Hockett of Cornell Law joining us. Bob is really, really close to the scenes with the folks pushing a Green New Deal. He's also very knowledgeable about the impacts of PAYGO. Um, I am really excited to be able to have him on such short notice. So without further ado, I'm going to bring on my guests. Welcome to the show, Mr. Bob Hockett. How are you today, sir? Hey, Stephen. Really well, thanks, and, and great to be with you again. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving. Oh, it was wonderful, man. It was wonderful. It was so nice to see you in D.C. the other day at the Economist for Peace and Security. Man, that, that almost made the event for me. I mean, between you, Bill McKibben, and Stephanie, I was just in heaven. Well, likewise, I, I, I was really happy to be there. And I'm going to tell you, before we get into the meat of our program, some of the neat things that happened at that event the gentleman, uh, congressman from uh, yeah. North Carolina. Yeah, Brad Miller. He said some things in that that really, really made me um, take pause to consider the ramifications of how we approach these people, these, these yeah. representatives. Basically, they're not deeply wedded to topics. They're not deeply wedded to these ideas. They're given cue cards 10 minutes before they go in meetings. You know, they say things and so forth. And, and I know that they have policy teams and, you know, advisors and on and on and on. But as we look at where we're headed with this very, very important bulk legislation that we're trying to advance in a Green New Deal, you have to wonder what the impact of that kind of, you know, very, very quick shelf life of thought is and how we can advance such a massive proposal with an electorate that's equally distracted, it, it's, quite, it's quite a lift. Um, but Brad Miller really, really opened my eyes to some things. Because, you know, I'm, here I am. I'm rather ideological in my own right. And I'm thinking to myself, you don't have to tell me twice. I know exactly what I want, and I'm going for it. You're telling me that these folks are maybe, you know, not quite wedded to things, and maybe they're movable. 
that tells me we've got a lot of room to play with, or at least an opportunity, a chance yeah. to make an impact. Yeah. What say you, sir? Yeah. So, I mean, I think there are a couple of things to say there right off the bat, right? The, the first is, um, you know, I guess every Congress member I've ever encountered, at least, is sort of variably sort of systematic in his or her thinking or envisaging. Some are quite systematic. Some have, you know, very, you know, sort of comprehensive views with many parts and all of the parts kind of are integrated together. They connect together. Um, and these particular Congress members then will be in pursuit of, of, of big visions that are very, again, well thought through. At the opposite end of the spectrum, you might have the sort of purely opportunistic Congress member, be it in the House or in the Senate, um, who doesn't really have many ideas of his or her own, but but sort of maybe responds in a kind of piecemeal, piecemeal way uh, to various initiatives or proposals that are sort of put forth by others and, and deciding, you know, whether to sign on to this one or that one, partly with a view or maybe almost entirely with a view uh, to what effect it's going to have on their campaign funding or, or their, their popularity in the polls or their vulnerability. Uh, to various forms of attack or what have you. And then most Congress members, I think, are sort of somewhere in between that. Um, I think Brad, um, you know, former Representative Miller, was very clearly sort of toward the first end that I mentioned of the spectrum. I had a very thoughtful fellow with a very uh, sort of well thought through and comprehensive vision of where we ought to be going. And most of the initiatives that he either um, proposed himself or got on board with back when he was a Congress member were very much informed by or sort of prompted by that vision, right, that broader vision. I think much the same can be said uh, today of Senator Sanders, of Senator Warren, of Senator Brown, and a number of other senators. Um, and then, again, there are some senators or Congress members who are over the opposite end, uh, and then most of them are in the middle. So maybe that's the first thing that's worth observing, uh, it seems to me. The second thing is I think you're exactly right. The very fact that many of these whole um, are not sort of settled when it comes to what their views are, at least when it comes to sort of comprehensive visions, means that they're movable, right? It means they can be convinced, or they at least some of them are open to being persuaded or convinced um, of uh, policy choices that can be made um, and can be persuaded partly on the merits and partly on the politics itself, right? If you can say, well, look, you know, this is, uh, you know, this particular view is actually pulling quite well, or this particular idea is pulling quite well. You can convince them that way, but many of them you can also, I think, bring along partly simply by reference to the actual uh, merit. And then that takes me maybe to the third observation that it seems to me worth making, which is that there's a tendency, I think, um, this I think this is largely the product, you'll probably laugh, but it seems to me this is partly the product either of orthodox economic thought, particularly microeconomic thought, or a product of the same complex that brought us orthodox microeconomic thought. And that is this view that voters simply, you know, walk into uh, into the room with uh, what the economists would call exogenously given preferences. Uh, and so, what it's up for political figures to do, or what it, you know, what what remains for political figures to do, is simply to figure out ways of satisfying those preferences. I think that this, that's a distorted view, right, of of the way most um, uh, typical Americans are probably thinking on most issues. I think most of us are relatively open-minded uh, and fair-minded on many, many issues. We come to those issues with particular values uh, in mind that we're variably committed to, but I think we're largely open to you know, how this or that proposal coheres or fails to cohere with whatever values we tend to hold. Uh, and insofar as that's the case, we ourselves are movable. Our preferences, in other words, are formable, and they don't have to 
They don't need, or they therefore do not have to be simply satisfied as if they were exogenously given and just sort of, you know, part of the architecture of the universe and, and, and not changeable, right? Um, so given that, it seems to me there's a lot of room for us, for people like you and me and the rest of our policy, uh, to convince Congress members who haven't been convinced yet, say, to go along with a Green New Deal or other sorts of proposals that are coherent with a Green New Deal on the one hand. And then it's possible for those Congress members and for us to influence the preferences of the broader public as well when they decide whether or not to get on board and support this Congress member or that Congress member who is advancing this position or that position, including a Green New Deal consistent position. Is that responsive? Is that Does that get at the question, do you think? Fantastic. No, that was exactly what I was looking for. And I really appreciate it. So, so Bob, what I want to ask you is this. You know, we have a young crop of, of new uh, progressives that have made it into uh, the halls of Congress now. Uh, some exciting wins with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, showing some real gumption going into Pelosi's office and, you know, working with the Sunrise Movement. Great marriage there. Talk to me. What do you see as the... Uh, the makeup of this Green New Deal. I, I know that the Green Party had advanced the concept of a Green New Deal, and and now the moniker is kind of stuck with this new effort here. I don't believe the two are the same. Can you tell us what we are facing, what 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 we're advancing with with Alexandria's version of this? What what, what exactly does this encompass? So here's how it looks to me. Um, my guess is that you get different answers from different people in the sense that it's still kind of a work in progress. And there's some things that I think all of us agree on, others that, uh, other things that maybe some of us would emphasize more than others and uh, other things that others would emphasize more than others. Um, but maybe the best way to kind of characterize the vision that seems to be emerging is as a kind of intersection or as a kind of convergence of several distinct threads that are all mutually complementary, but they come together in a nice potent way uh, in what's now being called uh, the Green New Deal idea. So one uh, of the threads is just that of the original New Deal itself, um, which you can think of as being primarily about going big, right? If there's a massive national problem to be dealt with or a massive cluster of mas uh, massive national problems to be dealt with, then the appropriate response um, by the collectivity, right, by that collective agent or collective instrumentality that is our government should be correspondingly big, right? So a willingness to think big, uh, a willingness to sort of restructure or to rebuild, uh, to do whatever it takes uh, to get us back in an economy that is much more just, much more sustainable, much more operative to the benefit of all of the citizenry and indeed all of the soon-to-be or someday-to-be citizenry as well, right? That's the first strand. Second strand, I think, is the uh, the so-called second Bill of Rights that FDR was planning to push, right, before dying uh, an untimely death, before the Second World War was even quite completed. Um, but as I understand it, the plan was, you know, once the war was done, once the war effort was over, um, that the nation already mobilized, right, to fight Nazis and the like, would continue to be mobilized, but in the cause of something that, oh, somebody like Woodrow Wilson might have called the moral equivalent of war, or I guess Abraham Lincoln might have coined that phrase, the moral equivalent of, of war. And that is basically to sort of make our society a much better and more decent society, go beyond 
um, the first New Deal and start to you know proceed to a kind of second New Deal, which would effectively put in place that second Bill of Rights, which would effectively basically encompass a lot of the economic and social rights um, that the United States as a polity, at least as a constitutional polity, has never quite yet fully embraced in its constitution and you know should have done. Um, and then finally, the third strand, I think, is just the greenness strand itself, right? So the idea is, all right, look, if we're going to have massive projects, if we need to undertake massive projects, if, if for example, we're going to go big on infrastructure, as many people seem to agree that we ought to do, we can do that in ways that are that are, are consonant with and, and, and compatible with a greener vision uh, of uh, an economy uh, and indeed of the world itself. And here, green, of course, means uh, partly connotes environmental considerations, of course, uh, as it originally did. But it connotes, I think, more than that. It seems to me that the word green in this context is coming increasingly to be used in a manner that sort of embraces broad inclusivity, um, you know, anti-bigotry, no redlining, for example, of the sort that we found in the case of some of the federal housing programs that were adopted during the, uh, the original New Deal. Basically, a kind of New Deal that doesn't have to compromise with bigoted Southern Democrats in the way the original New Deal sometimes did, um, so that it's no longer racialist or ethnicist uh, in its uh, in its formulation or in its execution. That's how it looks to me. And again, I don't think I think it's still a work in progress. So probably no one characterization is going to be entirely correct, sort of once and for all. But I think maybe the best way to look at what is going on here, what the sort of process of the development of the, of the Green New Deal is, is as a process pursuant to which these three distinct strands or streams are all sort of coming together, all sort of flowing into uh, one big green river. So th it's interesting because you know, I just spoke, I guess it was on the 17th, uh, to the Green Party of Pennsylvania. And there wasn't too much concern there. Ironically, they, they were very happy to see any progress being made in terms of this. But there are some people out there, and I'm sure that this is not the top priority for everyone. There are some people out there who have some hurt feelings that they feel like the Green Party was overlooked, that there wasn't proper deference or at least some mention of it. You know, I, I personally uh, am I'm just thrilled to death because I'm a human being and I have children. And my concern is that we make progress here. But I can understand, because I've had it happen to me, idea that I've come up with, or at least a, a phrasing or whatever has come up, and somebody else has taken it for their own purposes. I, I, I can certainly understand there's a little bit of, bit of a gripping there, a little uh, you know, a chafing, if you will. Yeah. How can we bring the left together? Because it seems like we have people that are willing to work together, that are not partisan, that are you know, of, of varying independent green and Democrat flavors. And we have some recalcitrants, you know, some folks that just simply are not going to, they're going to find a way to complain that this is making it to the front lines. And, and my concern here is, is that I want to succeed. I want this to work. I, we, you know, the IPCC comes out and says, we got 12 years, not, not to come up with an idea, but to actually do something to mitigate climate disaster and, and, you know, folks that don't even, it's a struggle for me because while on one hand, I appreciate their, their sensibilities 
flip side is, dude, I want to live. I want my kids to have a place to live. How can we bring the left together? Is the left hopelessly divided? So I, I don't think it has to be, Steve. But, uh, but, but as you know, I'm also kind of Pollyannishly optimistic or even metabolically optimistic. Um, so, you know, people can take any of my um, optimistic prognostications with the, uh, the, the, the requisite grain of salt. But, but I, do th- I think there are a few things that we can do um, to sort of optimize the likelihood that we all, that we do indeed fully come together without any uh, sort of miffed folk kind of carping from the sidelines or taking their catcher's mitt and going home or refusing to play ball or what have you. Um, I, I, one way to do it, one thing I think we might maybe would all do well to do uh, is almost make it a kind of formulaic or routine thing. Formulaic quietly overstates it, but a kind of uh, a routine thing where we always acknowledge the giants on whose shoulders we're standing, um, even if we ourselves are not directly standing on those particular shoulders. So let's say um, I was influenced by person A and you were influenced by person B. Maybe what I would do is going forward, always uh, acknowledge both person A and B, even if you're more influenced by person B and I'm more influenced by person A. And then you might do likewise. Uh, And indeed, if we then generalize this idea out to all of us so that all of us, each one of us is all the time doing the best he or she can to acknowledge right our sort of predecessors, uh, even those who are not our individual immediate direct predecessors, that would help, right? There is that sort of, you know, there's, I suppose you could say, this is one of those kind of one man's this is another woman's that. Um, so you sometimes hear um, people talk about how there's this deep Hegelian need for, or what's often referred to as a need of a kind of Hegelian recognition, right? We all want to be recognized for our contribution and, and as having um, uh, contributed in worthwhile ways. And we don't want to be overlooked or unrecognized for what we've done and what we're doing. Um, and that's the sort of the innocent take on the matter. Um, the less innocent one is you can say, well, there's always the narcissism of petty differences, right? Where, you know, sometimes um, pe- some people will be really keen to distinguish precisely what they say from precisely what others say, so as to kind of stand out and, and, and be sort of individually and independently glorified, you know, quite, quite irrespective of what's happening to everybody else. Um, the latter obviously is undesirable. The former, it seems to me, is perfectly understandable and reasonable, and it makes sense. Uh, and it seems to me that the best way then for us to proceed uh, is at least to sort of acknowledge that need for that kind of Hegelian recognition that everybody seems reasonably to have, or at least that most people or many people seem reasonably to have, by going ahead and recognizing all of those predecessors and doing it, again, routine, routinely in the sense that we always do it, right? We make a habit of doing it. Um, and then, you know, if we do a good enough job of that, it seems to me that the only remaining recalcitrants would be those in the grip of that so-called narcissism of petty differences. And I don't know that we would really have to work that hard to try to get them on board. There's, there's probably always going to be a few of those. But my guess is that the greater number of people who feel dissed are probably feeling dissed because they actually were dissed. They weren't appropriately or uh, adequately acknowledged. Uh, and so you've probably noticed, you know, I, I frequently like to, you know, point out that, you know, so-and-so is a hero of mine or so-and-so is a hero because they are, right? I've got a lot of heroes. And one, another way to think about this maybe is to say we should all maybe view ourselves as, as, as basically being required to be heroes to one another, right? And I then, like that, Bob. I like it a lot. And then maybe a corollary to that would be to say then we're all required to acknowledge the heroism of 
one another as well. Because let's face it, this isn't, you know, this isn't easy for any of us. And some of us, you know, it, it, have gone through, have, have endured or, or undertaken rather long and painful journeys, even to get where we are now. And, and I know that you in particular are, you know, among the many uh, dear friends I have, you're one of the most, I, I think you're one of the most, how should I put it, dogged, let's say, because you've fought through many more obstacles than most people I know. And the fact that you, here you are, my God, you know, I mean, again, you, that's this is why I, I, I'm not just being jokey hokey when I say that you're one of my heroes, you really are. Um, and I think we kind of owe it to one another, maybe as, as members of a common movement, all of us, even if this movement comes to embrace 300 million people or 250 million people in this country, uh, and many, many hundreds more million um, uh, abroad, um, we should all maybe think of ourselves as being duty bound to be heroic to want to acknowledge the heroism of one another as a kind of corollary of that. And that sounds kind of pie in the sky and all that I know, but it doesn't seem like it would be that hard for us to do. And it would basically, I think, spare us from a lot of unnecessary division. I, I, I love it, Bob. I mean, I absolutely love it. Now, Bob, one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about with this is the level of effort that it takes for us to overcome. And, and I'm, I'm part of the struggle. I'm with you, man. So I don't want to, I'm going to ask tough questions though. Obviously, many people are, are clueless, as we know, about how the actual economic system works. They're so clueless that they can't envision a better dream. And this is not on them. This has been done by design. Um, and, and, and it's not their fault. Um, however, the answer to solving many of these problems is in fact them understanding that we can do really great things. And, yeah. and it requires a mind capable of seeing that we can do really great things to do any of this stuff. I mean, this stuff is really, to quote Hillary Clinton, God, this is really the pie in the sky we're talking about. Yeah, this is really bridging differences for you to quote Hillary. <laughs> so we we are really talking pie in the sky here when when we talk about a massive new deal of any variety, much less understanding the cataclysmic climate situation that we're really in the midst of. I mean, we're past an event horizon. We're at the point now where we can only mitigate the results. That's frightening. Um, so to do nothing is the riskiest proposition of all. But when you believe that the country is broke, financially broke, incapable of doing these things, and you see people that are living under bridges, sleeping in cardboard boxes, tent cities in San Francisco, you see people afraid of migrant workers and immigrants, refugees coming to this country. Because they're petrified they're going to take their little teeny spot in life because we've painted this scarce narrative. How do we overcome that? I mean, I, I know what we're doing. How do we overcome that in government? I mean, it's kind of like a which came first, the chicken or the egg. I mean, they've got to both be activists in a sense because they've got to teach the people a new way of thinking or they have to get elected, which means they have to go with the way the people think. How do we overcome this? This is a really big deal. I mean, it's a huge deal. Yeah. So, I mean, there are, I guess there are a lot of different ways to sort of work at it. And we're all sort of trying in our, in our distinct ways, um, which oftentimes converge or overlap. Um, but, you know, a few sort of simple strategies that might be helpful going forward, it seems to me, are, um, are maybe as follows. Um, one is maybe anytime anybody talks about a budget constraint uh, or, you know, can we afford it or whatever, 
just systematically say, you mean an inflation constraint or you mean a resource constraint, right? Just sort of systematically replace the wrong word with the right word. Um, and, and what that does, I think one thing that can help with is for those who are sort of not ready to kind of sit down and hear out or listen through uh, the full and comprehensive explanation of how the fiscal system actually works, it at least helps to begin to kind of reorient thought. It, it kind of can maybe bring about or at least begin a kind of gestalt switch so that you get people kind of focusing on the focal points that deserve focus rather than the sort of pseudo focal points or the false uh, focal points. Um, a related strategy, um, or actually this is maybe just another instance of the same strategy. Uh, I'm quite fond of uh, Stephanie's and some of our friends tendency to draw people's attention or practice of drawing people's attention uh, to the fact that a public debt, that basically public debts are private assets, right? Or uh, public liabilities are private assets. And I, I think we can do a lot more with that as well. So for example, you know, I've, I've sort of joked sometimes um, in a kind of flippant way how I would like, if I were a, a sort of a something like a performance artist uh, slash trickster or mischievous type, I would some some late some night uh, in Union Square and at various other points in New York and in other cities where these public debt clocks are up, I would simply cover up the public debt's private wealth sign to say private wealth clock. And anytime somebody says, have you seen that public debt clock? I would say, you mean the private wealth clock? Um, and it's a nice way of kind of getting the point across, right? It, this is, uh, and Stephanie, of course, does a version of this really, really well in her presentations and in the graphics that she uses. Of course, so does uh, Pavlina uh, and so do some of our other friends in the, in the movement. Um, Randy's done this too, of course. It's a there's a it's a very potent way of at least beginning to reorient the thinking because again in a single stroke you're doing a kind of or enacting a kind of gestalt switch you're basically showing them at one stroke that it's a duck as well as a rabbit um, and the duck might be better than the rabbit right or at least the fact that it's a duck and a rabbit makes it somehow less problematic that it's a rabbit so that's i think that's one important strategy Maybe another important uh, strategy is just to sort of point out um, that, you know, oddly enough, you know, we haven't ever gone broke before uh, and we don't seem to have gone broke uh, with other sorts of expenditures that, you know, a lot of people would admit to being uh, urgent. Right. So a lot of Republicans will say, well, but it's national security. So we have to do it in that case. And it's worth risking going broke on that. And then you say, well. You know, if the if the entire planet is about to burn down, or if the entire economy is going to plummet, or whatever, then you know maybe it's worth taking your big risk on that one too. Especially given that the risk never seems ever to have panned out in the entirety of our nearly 300 years of, of, of history, right? And maybe finally, a third point, Stephen, is that um, in some ways, I think the problem is kind of beginning to take care of itself, almost as a matter of demographics. Um, and what I mean by that, and again, this might be overly optimistic. But it is beginning to look as though these sort of austerian types, both in the Republican Party and in the Democratic Party, are getting older and older and sort of dying off. And they don't seem to be being replaced, right? There doesn't seem to be a replacement mechanism for this sick way of thinking, thank God, right? Um, it's not a, you know, for a while, it did seem to be a kind of a self-replicating virus that just kind of spread and got worse and worse. Um, but we seem to have, you know, passed that kind of critical period or critical mass, and we it actually seems to be shrinking now, um, the, the number of, of those with afflicted by this virus. 
and the the newcomers don't seem to be afflicted by it and they're getting increasingly assertive and literate i think um uh, about you know about they're not having it right alexandria is a great case in point right i mean she's not walking around and talking like she's an mmt professor or something but and she doesn't even use those you know sort of mmt phrases um at this point and that might actually be a savvy thing to to do in congress to speak the content without necessarily the terminology in some cases might be strategically sound in some circumstances like maybe in congress but i you know you probably noticed everything she says and the kinds of things that she points to and observes and and kind of pulls out are exactly the things that we point to and observe and call out um and it's, it seems to me it's really hard to imagine a lot of other people not following suit very soon in that congress this is perfect this this is i didn't anticipate this beauty but you just set up the, the game for me right here this is exactly what i was hoping for so, you know, we get a lot of people that say, well, Steve, how come she's not saying it specifically like this? And I'm saying, listen, activists have a role. We've got to be bold, brash, and beautiful, and we've just got to let it all hang out. And we got, but we got to be strategic in how we do that. On the flip side, they have to get elected by people that don't have a clue about any of this stuff. And so they've got a different angle by which they have to operate in a different space, a different vantage point and a different role, quite frankly, in, in this in this effort. So on one hand, I don't want to hear somebody come out. When I hear somebody tell me that they're going to, they come up with this intricate tax plan and how they're going to pay for things and we're going to, you know, fair share this and that and all this other stuff. You know, I, I, I kirk an eyebrow, you know, and I go, okay, you don't get it. You're, you're going to keep us back. You're, you're an incrementalist that's not going to ever get a new deal with that approach. When I hear somebody purposefully dance with the devil and talk about these Pagovian taxes, these taxes like a Wall Street speculation tax that we know good and well. <laughs> I mean, please do me a favor because you'll do this a thousand percent better than me, but I enjoy it so much. I want to hear you talk through the gamesmanship of leveraging a Pagovian tax as the pay for and the response so that it's a non-answer, but it's an answer. It's like, hey, man, if you need something to pay for it, sure. Let's go ahead and, and throw, <laughs> do it. Yeah, with, with, with sort of uh, pigu taxes, I always think of that as really not about revenue raising. That's just about discouraging undesirable behavior, right? And I mean, I, I think anybody uh, would tell, you know, anybody who's kind of savvy about what the, what the nature of the tax code is and what the purpose of the tax code is, would tell you that. And of course, Stephanie says it quite well. And so do a lot of the rest of our posse, right? Our whole gang. That's what we say. And, and But the funny thing is that, you know, most lawyers, or at least most tax lawyers, uh, and you'd think they might know something about the tax code and the purposes of the tax code. I don't know if you've, if you've met a lot of tax lawyers, but they're kind of a notorious group among lawyers and among law profs and so forth, because they're often thought to be quite eccentric because they spend so much time in the tax code, which is unbelievably lengthy and convoluted, very difficult to interpret at various points. And, you know, probably more students tear their hair out, more, more law students probably tear their hair out over their basic tax class than just about any other class, precisely because the tax code is so complex. But one consequence of this is that those who are experts uh, in tax law and taxation, the lawyers who are experts in it, you know, are sort of eccentric figures. But one of the first things they'll tell you, and this is not eccentric, this is just the truth, is that you can't possibly look at the tax code and think it's about raising money, right? It's very clear that the tax code is, in effect, a gigantic social engineering tool. It's the way we do social engineering. 
And so if you're trying to discourage this kind of behavior, you tax it. If you're trying to encourage this kind of behavior, you help subsidize it or you provide tax breaks for it or what have you. And that's the real function of the tax code. In addition, of course, uh, to the sort of inflationary tap down purpose that it can serve in the event that you actually face inflationary pressures of the kind that this economy doesn't seem to have faced for about 40 years now. But um, but so that's, I think, the first thing that one can say in response to, you know, Peguvian uh, taxation or or to those who sort of talk about raising money through the tax code by, you know, uh, imposing Peguvian taxes or financial transaction taxes or whatever. A sort of a related point, you know, um, the, the, the old Tobin tax or the Wall Street transaction tax uh, or the excise, it has various names that it's been given over time. Um, it's You can view that simply as a form of Peguvian tax where the pollution in question, Peguvian taxes are usually, usually discussed in connection with pollution. The pollution in question in, in the case of the Wall Street transaction tax is that of hyper speculation, right, or of, uh, excess froth on Wall Street or sort of um, over uh, hyper volatility on the secondary or tertiary markets. But note that that too then is not about raising money or raising revenue. It's about discouraging the disfavored activity, right? It's about cutting that pollution, right? And so, you know, I'm fine with all of that. And I'm fine with Bernie's wanting to oppose a tax like that if he argues for it by reference to a form of pollution like excess speculation or churning on Wall Street. But when he insists on, or at least I guess when two years ago he insisted on referring to it as a pay for, uh, I think obviously that was that was misconceived. Uh, and of course, as we know, it drove our dear mutual friend Stephanie uh, around the bend. It just sort of drove her crazy. And I like to think he's kind of little by little kind of moving off of that particular dime. And, um, and, and we'll sort of stop talking about it as a pay for as we as we go forward. I'm sure he'll get there. I just hope he gets there before he's 95. <laughs> You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. I want to take take a second for this because you know obviously you know I, I don't really follow people that are haters too much. I, I haven't seen anybody ever advance the ball quite like Bernie has, regardless of of this very sore spot for us. But nonetheless, there's nobody that's done what he's done. Not in my lifetime. Yeah. In my lifetime, I've been surrounded by incrementalists that bleed the life out of me. He's the first one that invigorated me, and yeah. so from that angle, I, I have nothing but positive to say. That said, Stephanie was very clear when she was talking, I believe it was in Stony Brook. It was, um, she spoke, they asked about why Bernie keeps saying this stuff. And she said, well, you know, he kind of brought me on late in the game. We didn't have a chance to really talk through strategy. You know, I kind of had to, you know, kind of go with the flow here, you know? And obviously Stephanie is very, very hard on the pay for us. And in fact, one of my favorite 
tweets that she ever put out there was that, you know, she has absolutely zero patience for Robin Hood politics that chases gold coins in a fiat world. I love that quote. I mean, I, I, I use it constantly. And it, it's really a key thing here when you consider that these people have got to have some clue what's going on. I mean, they, they may have been saying it for a long time. They may have been, you know, the, the culture is such that they can't really shift it. But you look at Bernie and you say, this guy is surrounded, surrounded by MMT greatness. At some point in time, you have to wonder, why did he select MMTers to be on his hip? You know, and, and I remember the great article by Zach Carter that talked about the great ideas and so forth. The biggest ideas are coming from Kelton and so forth. And it described why they selected her and that they had taken her to that, you know, bar with all the Wall Streeters. And really what it came down to was they needed somebody from the outside that could shout down the the nonsense from the Republicans that had no problem walking in there and saying wrong, eh, wrong, eh, actually saying wrong also to the Democrats. And she has done that. Let's be fair in spades. I've got a treasure trove of her tweets alone that speak to this. MMT is a real game changer, and, and, and it really makes your mind explode. So for somebody like Bernie Sanders, who's been doing this for 40-plus years, I imagine it's a bit hard to change gears. You know, I imagine it's probably quite difficult. He was very, very adamant, not me, us. And, and so we are, you know, he said, I would tell you who to vote for, but if you did, I'd tell you not to, you know, vote for who you want to vote for. And, and he's telling us to use our brains here. And, and I think that it's crystal clear, like empirically so, that Stephanie is bringing the goods to the table. The truth is MMT. It's right there. There's no escaping it. And, and with that in mind, cut Bernie some slack. Let him be, you know, let him be the guy that brought her to us. He brought stephanie to the mainstream jamie galbraith and him brought stephanie to the mainstream let her do her thing stop demand you know and if we can look at it like that instead of say well well i can't talk about mmt until bernie says it explicitly well he's probably not going to happen you know it's probably not going to happen so you're going to have to figure this out through different means and and i think that we have a fairly sizable group of people now really pumping it around the world you know, this Green New Deal makes the most sense when we see it as a global problem anyway. And we ha- we're we well positioned in Australia with Bill Mitchell and others. We're well positioned in the UK now. We've got people coming around with this stuff. Can you talk a little bit about the U.S.'s role in leading the charge, not only to attack climate change, but to build these broad coalitions for economic justice around the world? Yeah, sure. So several things. I mean, the first. Um completely with you on Bernie on that, right? He, he did. I mean, there is a reason that he, he brought Stephanie on as his chief economist, right? And that tells you something in, in its own, in itself, right? And as you say, um, it probably takes, if he's been basically speaking the same message for four decades, um, you know, it, it, we should cut him a little bit of slack when it comes to sort of slightly retooling the vocabulary that he uses or some of the, some of the tropes that he uses. Um, it's also worth noting this, this is sort of a, this, an accentuation or a kind of a punctuation mark maybe added to your observation about how he brought her to the mainstream. Um, as you know, I've been, uh, dealing with working with a number of different progressive senators over the last while 
And what's really interesting is that every single one of the staffers who work with these other Congress members are very well aware of Stephanie and adore her. I mean, you can't mention her name without they're just looking like they're going to start sobbing with joy. I mean, they say, oh, my God, she's great. They look heavenward. They cast their eyes skyward. So what's sort of interesting is she's kind of not, I think you use the idea of, you know, get gotten under the skin. She's gotten under the skin of lots of additional legislators as well. And I think, you know, Bernie was presumably the entree or the, the entryway. Um, but, you know, I think it's just a matter of time before all of the progressive Congress members are trying to make use of Stephanie in one way or the other, or at least their staffers uh, will be. When it comes to, and, and by the way, that's another reason for my uh, perhaps excessive optimism. I mean, I really think that, you know, we're, I think we're sort of seeing the tip of the proverbial iceberg uh, with the election results a couple of weeks ago and with various other sort of or, or celebratable developments um, in Washington of late. I think this is actually just the beginning. It's going to be bigger and bigger and bigger. With respect to the global matter and the role that the United States can sort of play here, you know, one way I sort of think about it is, is it seems to me that I, I go along with the American exceptionalists in one particular respect, and that is I think we have been exceptionally harmful in multiple ways uh, to the world. I mean, we've done, you know, obviously we've done our share of good in the world as well, but we've done an awful a, a remarkable amount of, uh, of, of ill. Um, and if given that fact, um, if we could be sort of out front when it comes to kind of mending our ways and, and sort of rectifying uh, our errors, uh, and then also then beginning to serve as an example, not to, you know, uh, dictators in various parts of the world, or as an encouragement to you know, budding popular uh, sort of racialist or bigoted fascists or, or other forms of, you know, bigoted populists and, and the rest of the world, but instead being uh, start being looked at as kind of leaders uh, when it comes to sort of uh, rebalancing an economy uh, in the interest of, of the people of the, of, of the country uh, and in the interest of the planet. Uh, I think that would be a, a wonderful way to sort of expiate past sins or at least to begin uh, make a down payment on the expiation of past sins. And also just play a, you know, a, a role in the world that you and I and the rest of us as Americans can be sort of proud of. I remember, you know, so I remember when, um, when Bill Clinton was president, obviously there's a, there's a lot to, um, there's a lot to repudiate uh, from those times. But I do remember feeling how interesting it was, that how remarkable it was to feel for the first time in my lifetime that our president was as smart as other world leaders. You know, he didn't, he at least wasn't a, a, an idiot, right? Bill Clinton seemed like he was a smart guy. And sort of similarly, when we elected Barack Obama, in many, many ways, a disappointment, but I remember feeling this sense that, well, you know, but at least we have, you know, again, a smart leader. He's not Bush, he's like a smart guy. And also, you know, we actually, it means something, right? That we actually elected somebody who wasn't a white male. And I, I felt, you know, it's a very minimal kind of pride because you'd like the guy to do good stuff too. But it's, I still, I felt a kind of pride um, in that. And it seems to me both of those things, and I'm sure, you know, whoever the first woman is that we elect to be president, even if she's a Republican, I'll probably feel sort of proud, at least about the fact that she's a woman, that we did that. But in every one of these cases, it seems to me, that's just the, the tiniest little foretaste of what it's going to feel like when we can look at what our country does as a whole, you know, in a more plenary fashion and think, by God, I'm proud of that. I'm pretty, that's pretty cool that we did that. You know, if we could be a beacon of that sort, or at least a, a beacon among other beacons that are doing that kind of thing, I'd be so thrilled. I want to ask you another question. And this one maybe is a little tougher. Um, 
I know that you talked with Elizabeth Warren and you've helped her out with some uh, getting some bills uh, you know, circulated and talking about this, um, you know, responsible capitalism and so forth. I want to talk real quickly about Rokana momentarily. I, I'm going to get back to EW here in a second, but I want to talk about Ro. I got to meet Ro firsthand at the Medi- Millions for Medicare March in Washington, D.C. He and I shared the stage. And I talked to him offline. I came to him. I had been harassing him on Twitter. And I told him, I said, listen, I know you know what you know, the hate secret handshake, man. <laughs> and he smiled at me and he said, well, you know, inflation. I said, you don't have to talk inflation with me right now. I, I get it. I'm, I'm, I know the shake. You know? <laughs> and, um, but we talked a little bit about that. And, and you see clearly that even though he says remarkably Bernie-like bad things when it comes to the tax stuff, I know he gets it. That's why he and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are the only two that actually stood up against Nancy Pelosi's pay go. This is the next part to this. And, and this is where I think is probably the most difficult for everyone to get their head wrapped around. I spent an inordinate amount of time, and Stephanie has spent months and months and months talking about the perils of Pago. And here we are now at the 11th hour. It looks like Pelosi is going to retake the speaker role. Nancy is no progressive, and uh, she's basically sabotaged the entire Green New Deal in one fell swoop if she is able to successfully institute Pago. What do we do here, man? This is a big deal. I don't know what, I don't even know how to address this. This is one of those ones that makes me trip over my tongue, literally. No, I'm, I'm sort of of a similar mind to you on that, Stephen. Um, hard to say. It, it's, it's actually kind of hard to put into words just how frustrated I've, I've, I've been about that. And I'm, I'm trying to think about, I'm looking for a, a sort of a silver lining or looking for something to kind of hopeful or optimistic about here uh, on the one hand, and at the same time, on the other hand, looking for strategies strategies that we might employ or might might try. Now, on the latter point first, for a little while, there was talk about uh, how some members of the House were willing contingently to vote in favor of Pelosi as Speaker again, provided that she formed some special commission on a Green New Deal and that she put uh, Alexandria at the sort of head of it, that she appoint her as the head of that initiative. Um, I don't know where that is right now. I don't know whether she, whether Pelosi actually agreed to that condition and then is going to get those votes, and if so, whether she'll follow through on it. If she does, it, it seems to me that we can make use of that, at least to kind of keep hope alive, so to speak, over the next two years while we wait for a much cleaner sweep uh, of House and Senate and White House alike. The second thought that I have here, I guess, is that I'm thinking that come 2020, the sweep will be much bigger. Um, and my guess is that uh, we get even more Alexandrias in the House uh, and in the Senate at that point, and perhaps in the White House as well. Uh, and at that point, the problem might, to some extent, take care of itself, right? Because uh, Pelosi will no longer have the kind of, uh, well, first of all, she would, you know, presumably the White House itself would be against Pago in a case like that if we get the right person in the White House. Um, and we would have even more progressives on the House side. And who knows? I mean, maybe Pelosi herself would begin to kind of see a little bit more common sense, although I'm not going to hold my breath on on that one. 
The other thing is, again, I hate to sound cynical about it, but um, there is a demographic story here as well. I mean, she's presumably at some point she's going to be too old to be doing this. Um, now, I don't want to wait until that time, but at least knowing that there is that kind of horizon out there that's probably not that far distant is another sort of source of, of hope. But then finally, I think the final source of hope I have on this is that, and this is just in a, in a way, this is almost like a kind of religious faith, I suppose, but it's um, Alexandria seems to have been remarkably creative thus far in figuring out ways uh, to get the message out there and to act in ways that get the attention of the public and that basically continue to build our sort of coalition, including, again, that remarkable second day that she was there uh, in the office. I mean, she, she wasted no time at all in, get, in joining that protest right outside of Pelosi's office. So, you know, I, I, I hate to sort of do a Hail Mary thing and say, oh, well, whatever it is, Alexandria will save us or that, uh, you know, the other Alexandria. But I mean, that's an additional source, you might say, of hope, I would say, right? In other words, even if you and I don't come up with every strategy that can be employed in the next couple of years to try to try to counteract this, the, the mischief of Pago and the, the broader mischief that is Pelosi, um, it, we ought to take at least some comfort uh, in the fact that it's not just you and I who are trying to figure this out. And that uh, some some of those who are trying to figure out are actually right there now uh, in office and awfully clever and energetic, and especially Alexandria. So here here's my two points that I come with this, and, I, and maybe you can play off of this for me. The fir the first one is is the obvious one. Massive legislation takes time to cook in the oven, so yeah. to speak. So even if she has this paygo thing going. We saw how long it took to come up with a bastardized ACA. I imagine a massive package like this would probably take us through 2020. It may even be the thing people run on in 2020. So her paygo for the next two years may not be anything more than a stopper against Republican tax cuts. Maybe. <laughs> we could make it that, maybe, even if she doesn't intend it that way. You know, we in theory could make it that way. Right. It gives us a holding pattern, not a good one. I'm not here to celebrate it. Sure, I'm sure. just saying it's not the kiss of death because we wouldn't have a Green New Deal in that short period of time anyway. Yeah, I think that's right. Because the Senate isn't going to, you know, I mean, the Senate as it's currently configured probably isn't going to come on board with that. Um, and of course, I mean, let's, with the current White House, I mean, God knows. I mean, if you called it the Trump New Deal instead of the Green New Deal, maybe he would sign on to it because he doesn't have principles he just has narcissism right and so i've often thought that you know if we if we actually had a democratic house and senate i'm sure trump would be thrilled to go on with the new new deal it's just as long as we don't have hoover dams and uh mcdougall dams but we have you know trump dams or whatever so but given the fact that the senate still seems to be a problem maybe not quite the problem that it was but still a problem i think you're right it it, it might be that we're really talking about 2021 uh, when it comes to actually implementing things anyway and so really what the next two years are about is incubation uh, or cooking, as you put it, right? And that is common, right? I mean, in fact, a lot of the original New Deal itself, most of the programs of the New Deal itself were already in effect on the shelves and had been developed or pioneered or at least provisionally sketched out well beforehand. In fact, one thing I'm often struck by is how many of the most interesting programs in the New Deal were actually just scalings up of smaller initiatives that originally had been taken by either Republicans 
or by the Roosevelt gubernatorial administration in New York State, right? So, you know, Frances Perkins, the first woman ever to be a cabinet officer in a presidential cabinet, and of course, Roosevelt's labor secretary, had occupied a similar role vis-a-vis Governor Roosevelt when he was governor of New York. And the first form of social security was a, a New York state-based rendition, right? A kind, of, a kind of state counterpart. And many other New Deal programs were, again, sort of originated as sort of smaller state-scaled initiatives pioneered by Francis Perkins and some of uh, the other members of Roosevelt's sort of brain trust. And then on the other hand, a number of them had been pioneered, oddly enough, by Herbert Hoover, the Republican who preceded Roosevelt. But the problem in that case was that they were just, they were, as you put it earlier, incrementalist. They were very, they were just too, too little too late. And so one of the secrets, I think, of the Roosevelt administration that isn't adequately or isn't widely enough discussed precisely because by noticing it, we can take more hope and also see a bit of a blueprint, is the fact that so much of what it was was just a giganticization of what had been humbler initiatives that had been tried or proposed either by mealy-mouthed, wimpy Republicans like Hoover uh, or by state officials who could only make things so big because it was at the state level and, of course, because New York did not issue its own currency. But, you know, once you had um, the Roosevelt administration and the federal government um, operating with a public fisc that is financed by its own currency, you could really scale up in a massive way. So one thing we might think about the next two years as being about is as you know, incubating, uh, further developing, further uh, uh, articulating and schematizing the Green New Deal, getting more and more details into place, or maybe menus of options into place in connection with each particular plank or point. Um, and then, you know, be ready, have them to use Obama's old you know, metaphor from about eight, eight or nine years ago, have them, quote unquote, shovel ready for when we take the White House and the remainder of the Congress uh, in 2020. I, I like that. All right. So my last point to you, Bob, and I want to thank you, by the way, for spending this time with us. And you know, we didn't get a chance to really advertise or let folks know this was going on. And, and you're just a wonderful guy. I really appreciate you taking the time. But I guess the final final piece to this would be, you know, as as we progressives look at things, and and I know for me myself, your optimism is what I need. Uh, not just your optimism, but the optimism of others who are actively fighting in a positive fashion towards a positive outcome, because neoliberalism has been proven. Hey, there's studies, there's psychological profiles that the negativity is corrosive and literally creates mental illness. I mean, we're talking about something so pervasive and vile that without us really, really staying in victory, fighting for what we're for more so than what we're against, if, if we do that, I believe we have a chance to really change the world. Tell me about how we can stay in the victory and live in an optimistic way. I'm party be damned for a minute. Just all partisan allegiances aside, progressives as the larger block, how can we stay focused and committed on the positives of the New Deal, the Green New Deal that we're all hoping for, and, and avoid the noise, avoid the distractions, avoid the bullshit, so to speak, and stay on point? Can, can you can you fill that void? Because that to me is where the hope lies. That's To me, MMT is hope. The Green New Deal is the culmination of MMT. Can you give, fill in a little bit there? 
Yeah, so I think there are a number of things, maybe, Stephen. Um, one is, um, and I, I, I'm not saying this just to sort of be flattering of, of, of you, but rather to emphasize, I think, one of the very important values among many that you that you add that maybe doesn't get emphasized enough, and that is that I think a certain kind of networking, and uh, and I don't mean networking like, oh, I'm networking in order to meet a lot of people to get a better job, but I mean networking in the sense of forming networks. Uh, and maintaining networks, basically maintaining conversations or discussions uh, of the kind that you do, of the kind that uh, the Modern Money Network, um, you know, courtesy of Rowan and Raul does, and a number of other sort of networks do. One really amazingly important thing that these do, it seems to me, is they bring us all in. First, they bring us all into contact with one another. So none of us thinks that he or she is insane um, because, you know, he or she is the only one thinking these thoughts while being surrounded by, you know, sort of hostile forces of neoliberalism or, or whatever. But even beyond that, by bringing us all into kind of intercourse with one another, um, we basically, it, they enable us all in, over time to form a kind of a common mind, right? There's a sense in which we're all on a same, not only on the same page anymore, but almost, you know, on the same book or in the same book, right? We, we began, you might say, as having our hearts all in the right places, and so in that sense, we were all of one part, but we might not have been all of one mind because each of us had sort of been individually uh, trying to sort of hack out or eke out a kind of a vision for him or herself uh, in the midst, again, of a world where, you know, that, that hasn't been altogether nurturing of or welcoming of, of progressive thinking. But what happens is as we begin talking to one another and then we form these sort of epistemic communities that we seem to have uh, come to form. Uh, and as these distinct communities gradually begin to morph and merge into one great big, you know, kind of grand epistemic community, I think that in itself is a source not only of ideation or, or in, uh, sort of helpful planning and helpful constructing and so forth, but it's also itself a kind of a source of hope and non-insanity, right? Because you realize suddenly, oh, you know, it, again, I'm not just some kind of isolated character who's just, you know, kind of. I don't know, sort of crankishly, you know, shaking my fist out here in the wilderness, you know, out in the uh, in upstate New York or in uh, rural Pennsylvania or or where have you. My God, we're all you know, we're we're it, man. And and not only are we sort of it, but it, we're we, you know, we're in Washington now, too. We're in Senate and, and House offices. We're we're in, in, in congressional staffs. Right. We're on actual presidential campaigns and and not even fringe presidential campaigns presidential campaigns that almost win and then in the future will win right i mean it's in, it's amazing how what a what a liberating effect that has on the psyche as well um when you told me when you were when you were talking about neoliberalism as having as being a kind of a sickness or having you know kind of warping or kind of constraining us i was reminded of something a, a metaphor maybe this could serve as you you maybe get a kick out of this so as you know in the in the distant past when i was still a student i lived in uh, oxford the uk for for quite a while um, and the thing about Oxford, it's, it's in the Thames Valley. So it's, it's sort of below, a lot of it is sort of below sea level or at least very close to sea level. And there's a lot of fog and a lot of sort of detritus, a lot of sort of grime and um, how should I put it, kind of gravelly sediment that's sort of blown off the old buildings by the wind. And it kind of mixes with the, with the humidity in the air and it kind of hangs as this kind of ugly kind of black phlegm in a sense in the sky over Oxford a lot of the time. And people develop what's known as the Oxford cough. Now, here's the, word, here's the way in which that's relevant. Uh, I would periodically jump on a bus and just go up to Stratford-on-Avon or go up to the Cotswolds or some other part of the, of, of the UK just to get out of Oxford for a week or so or just because I had the opportunity to do it. 
And what I was always struck by is as soon as the bus got past the ring road that surrounds Oxford, as soon as you were sort of uh, out of the valley, suddenly the sky sort of cleared uh, and there was no longer that kind of hanging phlegm, no longer any clouds. And it just immediately, it felt, it, it just, it was unbelievable. I felt like I was 10 times the size that I had been in Oxford. And what it, I think what it signaled was that I, subconsciously I'd been kind of, in a way, kind of ducking. It was as though I'd been living in a place with a low ceiling without ever explicitly noticing that the ceiling was low, but just subconsciously registering it and hunching over accordingly. And as soon as the ceiling is raised, you know, you get out of Oxford proper, out of the Thames Valley, the ceiling rises and you suddenly feel yourself expanding. You become bigger and taller, not in a kind of grandiose sense, but just in a healthy kind of deep breathing sense, right? Not only been waiting to exhale, but you've been waiting to inhale. And now you can inhale, right? And I think in a way, what we're experiencing, all of us, um, with this kind of throwing over of this kind of neoliberal chastity belt or whatever the hell it was, <laughs> <laughs> this kind of weird like man in the iron mask thing that it was sort of you know uh, exerting on all of us is i think we're all feeling expansive right we're all feeling bigger and we i don't want to sound too you know kind of hokey dokey 60s hippie-ish here but but I, I almost feel myself kind of melding with the universe right with the world as i as i sort of expand outward as this kind of artificial ceiling that was all of this kind of goofball neoliberal crap is sort of lifted and, and, and blown away, right? It's like your kitchen filled up with smoke when you burnt something in the oven. And so you open all the windows and turn on the attic fan and it just sucks it all out. And suddenly they, oh, great, nice, big, clean environment again. And I kind of feel like we're, you know, you and I and, and the rest of our posse are sort of inhabiting, increasingly inhabiting that space. Uh, and in effect, I think what we're trying to do is enable the country and the world uh, to to experience the joy of inhabiting that space, right? Yes. Uh, Bob, that you you know what I want to I want to stop you right there and 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 just tell you that is like the closing ticket right there. That's like don't talk past the close. That was it right there. We're 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 not advancing something crazy. We're advancing hope, and we want we want people to be a part of that so badly. Come please, come on. There's plenty of room on this bus, right? Yeah. Uh, you're just a wonderful man. I I'm, I count it all blessings that you're in my life, and I, I thank you so much for the friendship, and I thank you for your time today as well, um, sir. I I appreciate this, um, Bob. Thank you for all your positivity. Thank you for your perspective, and uh, I look forward to seeing you soon. Thank you, Stephen. As I said before, you are my hero, sir. <laughs> you as well. You as well. Have a great day, everybody. Thank you so much. Yeah.